Welcome to the Growth Pioneers Podcast. This is your host, Doug Irwin. Welcome, Elizabeth, to the Growth Pioneers Podcast. It's really good to see you. Hey, Doug. It's good to see you, too. It's been a while. You've been busy doing lots of stuff. I'm excited to hear about it. Life is busy. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we jump into all of that, why don't you tell me a little bit about your background? Give the audience a little bit about you and you know your history as an entrepreneur and you know your upbringing whatever feels right sure so i am from michigan originally mm-hmm. i went to university of michigan for art and design school of art and design isn't there a big art school there out cranbrook or something like that cranbrook yes i actually applied to RISD and savannah college of art and design i mm-hmm. thought i was going to go to a dedicated design school but ended up going right down the road to u of m which yeah. is about 10 minutes away from home <laughs> great school great school. It was probably one of the best I got into. So it ended up being a a great experience. But the art school was not massive. But interestingly, that was one of the things that primed me for entrepreneurialism, which maybe not very many of my classmates would have agreed with that. But our curriculum was oriented around, you know, being multimedia artists and kind of self-managing. And one day I went to the dean and said, hey, why don't we have a business class as part of this There's an <laughs> program? <idea. Yeah. laughs> Artists really could benefit from having business classes, right? Seems Absolutely. Obvious. You're all going out there trying to create your own thing. Yeah. Did you have a particular emphasis like drawing? I mean, I don't even know what uh, painting, sculpture or what, you know, what was your... Yeah, I, I really wanted to study industrial design. So I was taking classes in the engineering school, physics, and electing myself into really complicated science classes, whereas most of my classmates were not. And I studied mostly sustainable design. So looking at how to impact systems in the world and make this place a, a better planet to be on. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that. That sounds like you were kind of in the Stanford D school without being in the Stanford D school. You sort of like totally. Made it around. Yeah. Yeah, I found out about the D-School a bit later on when I moved out to the Bay Area and went down there and visited as much as I could. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's a cool, it's a really interesting environment. So after school, did you end up going right out of school to the Bay Area? I worked for my sister for a year. I moved to Chicago for a couple years. And when I was in Chicago, I decided to start my first business. And my business actually came out of my thesis work in design school, which was around energy harvesting, so how we could capture energy from kinetic movements and mm-hmm. the the moving body. Yeah. And I was designing these flooring systems that captured energy to power lights and low-power electronics and entered some competitions and got some press and decided it was time to launch something. Wow, very cool. So like, was it my old engineering days was like piezoelectric pads? You got it. No, That's no, exactly it. Yeah, I, I was in material science engineering for a hot second, and then oh, I moved on. But, I'm envious of that. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, I, I was. Know. I would have been. <laughs> not, not back in the 90s when I was in school. It was mostly in the lab. Like, I just, there was no, you know, the computers were not a thing. But I yeah. remember a few things in piezoelectrics is one of them. So yep, Very it. cool. So tell me about that company. How did that go for you? So I started what was called Power Leap, mm-hmm. and after some... News articles, I was published in Fast Company and the New York Times and was featured on the Discovery Channel and really just got a ton of media attention for what I had launched as Paraleap. And it was this concept of capturing and converting kinetic energy into electricity. It was very conceptual, pie in the sky and 
really driven around education and educating people about energy and yeah. what we could do and how we could take more responsibility for our our sustainable future. That won me some really, really interesting work all around the world. I traveled to Saudi Arabia and traveled to the Middle East quite a bit and Australia, London, all over Europe, Denmark, yeah. and was just installing these systems that I was building, you know, in my parents' garage and in my no friends way. in my friends' workshop and hodgepodging things together here and there. Wow, that must have been quite the experience. I mean, right out of college, a couple years out of college, building something in the garage and then installing it like in a palace in Saudi Arabia or something? Yeah. So a part of it that I reflect on all the time is ignorance is bliss. I didn't know anything. I didn't know what an entrepreneur was and I didn't know what it took to start a company. And I just did it. <laughs> and my dad was an entrepreneur all growing up. So he was a, in the natural foods business and we always saw him like packing up his car with samples of soy milk and going to the grocery store and getting people to taste his new product. Wow, cool. And I often was his sample girl and would go along on Saturdays with him and hand out samples of Eden soy, which was one of the products of the company he started way back in the 60s. I learned a lot from that, obviously. Just the hustle and the bootstrap mentality of you got to go out and do your own work. Yeah. What a great experience. I mean, I, I do think entrepreneurship can be taught at some level, but mostly it seems like it's genetic or passed on through experience. I mean, nothing like sitting there being the sample girl to get a real insight into what it means to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. Sunday nights, sitting around watching TV, we were folding pamphlets and putting stickers on them oh, for his cool. trade shows. And Yeah, that sounds great. I Early on, my dad was selling jojoba oil, and I was going door-to-door selling jojoba oil in my neighborhood. Yeah. Awesome. That's, those are the experiences that stick with you, don't they? Absolutely. And it was such a rich community that natural foods industry, those folks were so passionate about getting people to eat more healthy and use healthier products like yeah. Yehova. And so there was a big part of that in our culture at home of just being good stewards to the planet and yeah. stewards to the world. That's great. So how did that first company, I mean, so you're flying over the world, you're installing these things. Did you continue to, to build on that or what was kind of the next step for you on that? Yeah. So I had then moved back to Michigan and was living with my folks and just decided if I'm doing this much traveling and I just needed the support system and free rent and <laughs> <laughs> all of the good things. And it was actually one of the most rich times in my life. It was so wonderful living with my parents as an adult. You don't uh, usually hear that. Honestly, this whole like boomerang kid thing, you usually hear it's the other way around. No, I loved it. And I've always tried to find my way back to Ann Arbor and live right next door to my parents because I love them that much. But yeah. oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> so I was traveling around doing these one off installations and really wanted to get to the point of a commercialized product. And so I joined up with my business partner at the time and we were starting to get the attention of some commercial companies who are saying, can we embed this into carpet tiles? Can we put this into our shoe to power the sensor that we just embedded into our shoe, which right now we have to take out every five days to charge? And so it really became this idea around parity of, okay, we have a certain amount, a finite amount of energy that we can capture, and what can we power with that? And so we spent many years looking and exploring those applications. And 
being awarded contracts, SBA grants to really just continue the research and the innovation on the technology. Hmm. And that was a really fascinating phase. I learned a lot about corporate America and had some really, really interesting clients. But eventually, what we learned about the technology is, and it's still one of those baffling things to me, is there just weren't enough people putting effort into commercializing the core material that Mm. we needed to manufacture. And so the cost parity just never, we were never able to get it there. I really resonate with that experience. I mean, when we were in the fertility space, we had like the world's first shelf-stable microfluidic and it was needed to be a disposable unit and it was like throwing away a Rolls Royce and we just couldn't ever quite get the cost down and there was just too much technology so I feel your pain. It's tough when you have something that you know works, but is difficult to scale and the market doesn't support it. Yeah, that's exactly it. And raising tens or hundreds of millions of dollars may not have ever gotten it there. So we had the support of some leading scientists and leading professors in the field at the time. And we decided ultimately, which wasn't necessarily let's we have to leave this behind because it's not going to be manufacturable, but we still really wanted to push on and commercialize a product and we weren't getting there. So we pivoted maybe again. This was the first real pivot and rebranding of the company. And it happened because one of our clients at the time was a contract furniture manufacturer. And they were saying, we really just want to know when this desk is occupied, can we do that by embedding your technology into the chair so that when somebody sits down, it says somebody sat here? So very simple binary data of saying in use or not. And we said, okay, it's going to cost X to use the energy harvesting or it will cost pennies, if not fractions of pennies, to use a battery. So we decided to evolve the entire product Mm. and get rid of what was heart and soul to me at the time. And rebrand as the company that I ran up until very recently called Coworker. And, it, you know, it's under Coworker that you and I ultimately met for the first time. But, yep. you know, again, I really resonate with this idea of like being committed to a first product and then the difficulty of letting that go and moving to pivot. It's not easy to do, especially when you have, in our case, we had a lot of investors, so there was a lot of inertia. But obviously, you know, this was your baby, this was your creation. Yeah, and we had raised family and friends, so the people behind me financially were very personally and emotionally attached to me. So they were going to trust me to make the right decisions and not force me in any direction. So it was ultimately just a decision of how do we move forward from here and how do we keep making progress. So it was a really challenging time for me personally. We were living in San Francisco and... I was a bit tormented by that decision for about a year, but you just keep grinding and you keep pushing forward. (laughs) And then you deal with that in the evening and however you want to deal with it. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that, you know, when you set out on an entrepreneurial journey, you just never know where it's going to go. And things like that were, for me, it seems like there is something important to just try to get to the truth of things and not get too caught up on what it is. But I feel your pain. I mean, I having raised a lot of money on one thing and then being like, actually, we're going to do something totally different is is hard. So after that, you know, your coworkers up and running now around this original idea of determining if people are in office or was this just around this really 
about in a seat or not? Yeah, so very focused on commercial office space. Our relationship with this furniture manufacturer was in Asia Pacific. And at the time, this concept of unassigned desks, what was called activity-based working, was really leading the way in Asia Pacific. And so they had all these customers saying, look, we took away desk assignments or we want to. We want to build the case for taking that away because people aren't coming into the office as often as they used to. And they didn't have any data to support that initiative. And once they had made the transition, they want they needed the data to figure out what was going on and help people find available desks and a whole myriad of applications for that raw data. So we went out and built that technology. And really, it's one of those industries and commercial real estate that's very paper heavy and Mm. not extremely fast moving, but we had a lot of traction in Asia Pacific, and then we eventually took it direct to market in North America. Wow. And who was your ideal client in that case? Is it like a big commercial office landlord or is it the company? Like who? Yeah, it's the tenant. So it's the brands that you know of and interact with every day who occupy these spaces. So they may be leasing from a big real estate company like CBRE, or they may own their own buildings and campuses like, you know, an Apple owning their own campus. Yeah. So, and having this data helps them do what? Like, how does this affect their bottom line? Or if I get all this data from you, then what do I do? You know, what's my action that I take as a result of the data you were providing? Yeah, there are a few applications. The core and initial application was time-based data capture. So maybe even just using our technology for three months or six months, which was a great use case at the time because our batteries only lasted (laughs) at first it was one month, then we got it to three months and then now seven years. So that's just an amazing attributable to Moore's law, right? Yeah. Which which usually doesn't, well, I guess that's a combination. I mean, batteries have not been improving that much, but then obviously the technology gets smaller plus battery improvements. Yeah. Yeah. It's all the components that go into it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So at first it was just time-based data collection, which the use case for that was we want to build the case to our director of real estate that we only need four floors instead of five floors in this building and we can save five million dollars on subletting out a floor or giving up that part of our lease yeah so a lot of it had to tied back to lease renewals or subletting some of their space so really you know optimizing the space that you have trying to understand how the space is being used and just making better decisions so that you're you know being more cost of efficient with your yeah and you have super high growth companies that it is so inefficient to move to a new location so how can they fit more people in and accommodate schedules so if we are low on fridays and it's a certain space type then we can encourage meetings or we can encourage that kind of workplace activity but they needed the data to support it what year was this happening this is around 2015 2015 okay so we really launched that product great and so then from then and that takes off and you guys are running coworker and then you did you expand beyond that into other product or was that pretty much your main Yeah, that was the business. We were really focused on just kind of this churn and burn model at first and then once we got the battery life to over 12 months, we said, "Okay, we can start selling this technology to our clients as opposed to just leasing it for time periods." And that kind of changed our business model and allowed us to really play on our API integrations and lean into our partnerships and do a lot more 
collaboration with the existing technologies that those tenants had in their space. And so then it became this idea of, you know, you have IoT and that's like the backbone to your building or the nervous system and how many different systems or services in your building can it can control or influence. Uh, Interesting. And which feels very timely in the world of COVID. And I'm I'm super curious about how that, I mean, I could kind of see how your technology would, could go well. And then obviously there's a big shift in office space. So you've been running this business, then COVID happens. What happens to you? I mean, is it good for you? Is it bad for you? What what happened? Yeah, it was such an interesting time. Like the whole industry and our whole network came out of the woodwork and everybody's just talking to each other and getting on podcasts, doing webinars and putting their thoughts out there. And, you know, everyone thought offices were going to open up again three months later and still two years later, the majority are not reopened and people are not back in the office. And this constant realignment of your strategy and your initiatives. And for us, there was a lot of innovation on the software side and what could we build to help get people back in the office. So we were applying the sensor data to janitorial services. So Mm. you only have 5% of your staff showing up. Those are the only locations that you need to clean across all of your floors as opposed to cleaning. So driving efficiencies there. But it was really challenging for... I think the entire industry and for us being bootstrapped, we kind of had the flexibility to size up and size down our business just based on demand. So we had some ongoing subscriptions and we had a lot of customers who were actually reopening spaces. And so they were wanting to lead with technology, make sure they got their technology in there first. And that definitely allowed us to get through the last two years. Sure. You didn't pivot into the home office. Like, I'd really like to know how much time I spent in front of the refrigerator <laughs> in my I, home office. We've definitely been asked. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, you know, it brings up a point about anonymity and, and IoT and sensor technology, which is just a question that I've dealt with for the entirety of, you know, my career in this space. But we have very intentionally designed around anonymity and privacy by design and use thermal sensors instead of cameras where some of our competitors Uh, were using cameras and i hadn't even considered that right i mean i guess you could use that a nefarious manager could use that punitively towards employees yeah and it can more easily be hacked there's facial recognition that could be run if you're streaming camera image and that's just something that we felt very strongly against and didn't want to have anything to do with it with a two yard fit stick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, somewhere along this, you you got some brilliant insight and you decided to move to Reno. So w- what was that all about? Like, how did you... Yeah, good point. So my business partner, Keenan, who he and I met at U of M in undergrad, actually, he was in the architecture program and I was in the art design program and he would have these beautiful, amazing pinups which in architecture language just meant like you were putting your designs up on the wall. Okay. (laughs) And he just had like this knack for organizing information and visually presenting information very well. And he had moved back to Ann Arbor. When I moved back, we started working together then and we decided to move out to San Francisco and build the business many years ago. So he started a family. He got married. He and his wife had a baby and they decided to move back to Michigan. And so we were kind of just like, this city doesn't really 
fulfill us. Yeah. <laughs> and we just were never really in love with San Francisco. We we gave it a shot and we gave it our all and we just didn't feel fully embraced by that city and yeah. or just that it was our place. Yeah, I had the same experience. I mean, it, I appreciate it, but it just wasn't ever my my jam. Yeah, exactly. You know, we're small town kids, both of us. So Anyhow, he moved back to Michigan, and my husband and I were living north of San Francisco at the time. He had opened a restaurant in a town called Petaluma, and we just had an opportunity to sell out of it. And we said, hey, where do we want to go? And we didn't want to go too far because his parents were nearby, and we settled on the Truckee Tahoe, Reno area. That's great. Yeah, and I called up you, Doug. (laughs) First person I talked to in Reno, and I said, I'm sold. <laughs> this is going to be a great place to be. It was great. It was super easy. You know, we're always doing attraction. You never know where it's going to go. And I'm like, I think she's made up her mind. Like, this is great. I just, let's just help you figure out how to get embedded in the community. And one of the things that I really appreciated about you when I first met you was this attitude of like, how can I get involved? How can I help? You know, given your design background, your IoT, you just said, let me roll up my sleeves and I'll get involved. And you got involved with the university. You just did so much, which... Which for me, you know, as someone who's building this ecosystem, it means the world to me because it, bringing your skills and your enthusiasm to help build something that I've been working on was really meaningful to me. And I just really, you were just so enthusiastic about it. I really appreciated it. Well, that all comes from that entrepreneurial background and my family experience. And it was like being an entrepreneur wasn't about being on the cover of magazines and making a massive business. It was about building up a community and building that fabric that surrounds a business. And for me, I felt like I was at a place in life where I had something to offer and hired a bunch of interns from the university. And that's been great for all of us. And yeah, (laughs) yeah. you know, like I said, you, you jumped in with both feet and not everybody does that. I'll say that. So it's especially meaningful. So you've been here for a couple of years. I mean, COVID happens you know, a lot of life happens. So what's the update on co-working? It sounds like you've gone through some interesting personal and professional transitions. Yeah. So there was a period about a year and a half ago, I was on a walk with my sister and I was like, you know, I think I'm ready to sell the business. And I just said it out loud and put it out there. And then I had to make it happen. <laughs> yeah. Is it, was I there was, a particular, you know, moment where, I mean, or something that was driving you behind why you wanted to sell it? I was just ready for another stage in life. I didn't feel like I was being challenged a whole lot anymore. And we were we were doing our thing and we were successful and we had really happy and satisfied customers. And I felt like scaling it, running it myself was going to be somewhat linear. And so I was just ready for another experience and learning something new. Yeah. You seem to like to take on big challenges, though, because in addition to selling your business, we're thinking of selling your business, you started a family. I did. We were pretty heavy down the road with one company, one prospect for acquiring us. And meanwhile, I was pregnant. I kind of made that decision at the same time of, you know, I'm ready to give up the reins and start a family and learn something new and be something else to this world that we live in. Yeah. So I met one of the co-founders of the company that did acquire us about three or four months before we closed on the acquisition, maybe five. And they were just 
at the right place looking for a sensor technology to incorporate into their existing platform and knew that it was going to help them move faster. And we were aligned on that vision and that strategy. And we wanted to basically apply our data and our technology to a broader realm. And so it was really a perfect fit. And we were super excited about it. And it moved really quickly. Yeah. I mean, I remember you saying, I think I'm going to sell. And then it wasn't but a couple months later that you're like, all right, we're closing. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I've just always known you to be the type of person that says, I'm going to do this and then it gets done. So I guess <laughs> it didn't done. really surprise me, but, you know, it seemed like it went quick. Yeah. I'm one of those people who, if I start something, I have to finish it. Yeah. And no matter how long it takes, which my parents always say, wow, you built this business and you stuck with it for so long, even though you pivoted and changed, but you just kept plugging away. Yeah. So from initial idea to sale, how long has that been for you? Sometimes I'm embarrassed to say, but shouldn't because we were so many different things. But I think I incorporated in 2009. Okay. Yeah. So you were an overnight success in 12 years, whatever it is, (laughs) whatever that old adage is. Yeah. And actually in 2009, I was working with two other guys on on the only other startup that I've been involved in. Well, that's not really true, but... I'll say it just so I can continue, but that was an interesting project called Ecolect, which was a sustainable materials consulting uh-huh. business. So we did a bunch of consulting, and then we were starting a material subscription service oh, so that designers, you know, in the furniture, products, interiors realm could sample materials from. And that was just a crew of really creative people, and we were like in the Cooper Hewitt and in some really interesting features. But one of our co-founders went on to start a business that is one of the top four now. So, Oh, wow. Oh, wow. (laughs) He said, our investors told me I need to put this to rest so I can focus on the the new business. And we said, okay. Yeah, wow. Go do your thing. Yeah, you've got some good friends. Yeah. So you go, and you're going through a lot of transition, right? I mean, you run this business for 12 years. Obviously, having a baby is life-changing. You know, all these things are going on at the same time. Like, how have you been managing through all that? What's it been like for you? Yeah, so July, Caleb, my baby, Caleb Maurice, he was born June 13. uh, Another Gemini. Good job. uh, Uh, You're you're in for trouble. (laughs) My husband's a Gemini also, so we're double Gemini house. (laughs) I'm sorry to hear that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm used to it now, so... It's okay. It just adds to the chaos, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, I can handle it. And we closed on the acquisition July 2nd. So two weeks after he was born, I'm signing documents from from the labor room. Wow. And had an incredible lawyer who was who's based here in Reno. I don't know if I'm naming you, names. You can so. shout him out if you want. Yeah, Craig Macy. Oh, was, yeah, Craig. Yeah, Craig's great. We're, he was the best. He was the bomb. And he made the experience so pleasant. You yeah. know, we just got on the phone and chatted and had a great time throughout the whole process. So he was just kind of one of those, like, pieces that carried everything through. So there wasn't a before and after and made the process enjoyable. And honestly, you always think about having a child and like this time off. And I knew I was never going to be in that position. And in hindsight, those first couple months of being home with him and having something that I was still reporting into was, I think, really good for my headspace. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
I can't speak for my wife, but I can tell you that those first moments were pretty challenging. I mean, I, she went through some postpartum and, you know, having some of that anchor, I can see how that would be helpful. Yeah. I just didn't have the headspace to be pulled yeah. out of what I was currently in because it was pretty tightly wound probably. <laughs> um, <laughs> good self-awareness, I guess. That's yeah. Good. I had no other options. So it was, I mean, I suppose I, I did. I definitely had other options, but that is the path I chose. And yeah. uh, it was great. It all worked out. So, I mean, just really, I mean, you went from no baby, your own company. Now you're working for this other company. What's the name of the company you're working for now? R0. R0. Yeah. Okay. So they actually were founded a month into COVID. Huh. And their kind of MVP product was a UVC tower that you wheel in for disinfection. And since then, they've pretty significantly innovated on the platform and are, you know, really exploding in the field of UVC disinfection. Interesting. And so servicing all spaces that need to look out for their occupants. So you, with your technology, let me just go to the, if I understand this, with your technology, you can see where people have been. And so you can create a more effective and efficient cleaning path, right? Like you don't have to go clean in the office that wasn't occupied. Is that is Yeah, that and an auditable trail of what has been done. So um, making sure that we are able to track back and assess what's been completed over the course of the day. Now, most of the technology now is automated. So there's a lighting fixture that will go in any conference room that will just run and is safe for human contact and can run when occupants are in the space. So, uh, um, still we have kind of that occupancy information that feeds the system, feeds the janitorial yeah. service, and also justifies the use of the technology. So yeah. if there's doubt of the need for the UVC, we can go in with sensors first to understand how spaces are being occupied. Oh, interesting. So yeah, on the front end, you can say, hey, this is this is why this needs to be cleaned at this rate or whatever. Yeah, and yeah. model the risk in those environments and use community data to understand what's going on around those facilities and how that could potentially impact viral load in their yeah. locations. I mean, it seems like, obviously, because of COVID, this would accelerate that business. And it just makes, it seems like people are just becoming more mindful of the role of biologic hazards as they were viruses in, in the work phase. So it, my guess would be this would be adopted well beyond when we're on the other side of COVID. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when we first looked at it, we said, my first reaction was, this isn't a fad that's going away. You know, this is something that we're going to have to look out for forever. One, these viruses are mutating and who knows when we're ever going to stop talking about COVID, most likely never. Yeah. And if not COVID, then there's something else. And there's the sick day is what we're focusing on and impacts U.S. businesses alone, I think $575 billion annually. Oh, I can totally can see that. Sick days is like $175 billion. I think 575 is occupational hazard yeah. and yeah. the others. So has it been, I mean, obviously a shift, right? You're running your small company, you got, and now you're part of this venture-funded, fast-growth company. What's that been like for you to go from master of your own world to being part of a bigger team? So I'm general manager of sensors. I kind of came in to run the sensor business. So I'm an operator in a similar function. I have, you know, I have staff who 
are some of, you know, our previous staff and actually one of the interns I hired out of UNR, we hired back on. Awesome. Good job. <laughs> yes. Go pack interns. He's one of my favorite employees I've ever had, if I'm allowed to say that. <laughs> so operationally, that feels somewhat similar, but I've never worked for a large organization like this. And so we have HR practices that I'm learning a lot about and, you know, manager reviews and just kind of these these processes. Oh, boy. But my wife's in HR, so I can tell you, I you know, necessary, but not always fun. It's all really good. It's, yeah. it's stuff you know, but you haven't really consciously pondered a whole lot. Yeah. And, you know, this is a high growth company. So there's organizational structure that we're all just trying to figure out who do we want to bring into what and who's responsible for what decisions. And there's a big product roadmap that we're working on that's super exciting. And Yeah. I mean, it's quite a different experience. I mean, is it everything you would hoped it would be? You know, I think I, as you're noting, approach everything in life of just like, bring it on. I'm excited to learn and I want to, you know, dig my teeth in and take a big bite out of this. Yeah. So that's kind of where I've been. And Honestly, the first two months with a baby, baby sleeps so much. It was like, this is easy. What's everybody talking about? Uh-huh, just wait. <laughs> yeah. So my my advice to new mothers, new working mothers, is take a delayed maternity. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great idea. That is my number one takeaway of the last seven months being with a newborn in the house. Yeah. So what's the ideal time then? If you can, you know, you're in the U.S. model, you can only take three or four months. When would you take it? Would you take it at... Month I think three? two months in. Two months yeah, in. Yeah. Okay. That's exactly when they start really needing you more and they're alert and they are aware of the fact that you're like turning your back on them. Yeah. That's when it starts feeling really bad. <laughs> Imagine that you come up with a, a more efficient way of managing maternity leave. This seems like totally up your alley, right? <laughs> <laughs> what an idea. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. So now you've got a crawling baby. And how has that been to be, I mean, you have obviously additional responsibilities now. Like how, how does that being a mother and being an entrepreneur coexist for you? Yeah, I, I think it's a good point. And getting back to entrepreneur, it's like, you are who you are and your work yeah. ethic is your work ethic. Cause I look at myself and I get back on and get some work done after I put him to bed. And, you know, I wouldn't necessarily have to do that if I were a nine to five yeah. employee, but I work the way I work and yeah. I I want to do better and I always strive to get the job done. <laughs> sure. It's clearly part of who you are, right? I think it's part of your essence. Like you being an entrepreneurial, whether you're in your own company or running the division of another company, that's your entrepreneurial spirit is what's really coming through. Yeah. And I think the most interesting part of the work right now is just connecting the dots and it's a big mystery to me because I haven't done this before in a large organization, but it's incredibly complex. You're not just building it from scratch. There are pieces that are existing and you have to connect what's yeah. already there to move efficiently and make things actually happen. Yeah. So that's kind of what I'm focused on right now personally in the work that I need to get done day to day. Well, do you work with other entrepreneurs? I mean, how would, given your experience, I mean, it's, you've kind of gone through the full trajectory, starting something, pivoting, selling, and now doing something else. How would you help support other female entrepreneurs that want to come up and do this? I mean, I would imagine there's a lot of lessons you've learned along, along your journey that would be applicable. You know, obviously more efficient maternity time is maybe one of them. What are some of the other ones that have come up for you that would be worth sharing to the world? 
Yeah, I think you just kind of have to lean into your personality. And it. I am perhaps less outspoken than I could be about my experience in the Bay Area. But, you know, there's definitely a lot of times it felt like a boys club and I just wasn't invited or belonged there. I never wanted to say it out loud because I didn't want to use it as an excuse. And it's not. You just have to do what you do. And if you don't fit in, then you go find someone you fit in with. And I'm still trying to figure that out and how how women can be more successful in this world. And I think there's a lot of people trying to figure that out. Totally. But I mean, the venture dollars to female founders is abysmal. It's something like it's really less sad. than 3% or something like that. And, and it got worse during COVID, from what I understand. Yeah, you know, I tried to raise a few rounds of capital and never did. And one reason why I really leaned into this acquisition opportunity was because these these guys believed in me and they believed in what we built and they really respected us and respected the work that we did and i knew that would carry into the work that we would do for them yeah which is great i mean to finding the right partner regardless i think is really critical but it's unfortunate to hear i I do feel like we talked a little bit about you trying to raise capital at one point Obviously, Reno has not been, it's not the ideal place to raise capital. It's getting better. I mean, there are definitely better places. But did you have some real challenging experiences with that or it just wasn't the right thing? Or, You know, we did have an offer actually in the end from a group here in Reno. And that was the furthest we'd gotten in the end. Well, this was like April of 2020. So yeah. we saw the writing on the wall of it may not look good. We don't know what our future looks like and we don't want to raise money and take on that liability right now because we didn't know what the future of our business was going to look like with all commercial office space shut down. (laughs) Yeah, that makes, that gives me a little bit of uh, anxiety just hearing you say that. Yeah. And the investors knew it was a risk as well, but we ultimately just decided, look, we can we can weather this out right now. So we did get to that point of having an offer, but you know, in the Bay Area, New York, I've done the roadshow a few times and built good relationships with investors, but just never got anyone to on the hook. Yeah. And I look at my competitors, they've been able to successful raising gobs of money, all male run businesses. And yeah, it kind of makes you wonder, huh? I mean, it's hard to know exactly what's going on there, but the data is not good. Data is not good. And so you got to imagine there's something else going on. Yeah. But, you know, I guess my advice to women is if you can't get the capital, don't worry about it. Go out and build your business and you can still make a big splash in the world. Yeah. It may not make you filthy rich in the same way, but. Yeah. I'm not sure that's totally the goal either. I mean, I, exactly. you know, maybe for some people. One of the things I really appreciate you, Elizabeth, is your value centered, right? Like the thing, the reason why you're in entrepreneurship isn't necessarily just to make a dollar. Like you really want to make an impact. And I I really appreciate linking it back to your time with your dad and seeing the impact. I mean, natural foods back in the 60s was pretty radical, right? I mean, or definitely counterculture. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things I love about entrepreneurs is you have a vision for the world and you just want to help create it. I mean, every time I see a Tahoe stand-up paddleboard, which I've been out of that business for 10 years, and I didn't make any money. In fact, I lost some money in that deal. I feel proud. Mm-hmm. Like, we saw something, we created this, and I know the impact it has on people, regardless of the money. I mean, the money's great. Yeah, but you should. Yeah, that, I think, was another reason why we were disappointed when we went to San Francisco. It was just like, we want more layers to this, and like, yeah. more layers to our interactions with people, and more layers to 
the culture here, which was just like very quickly eroding. But ties back to why my experience in Reno has been so rich is that there people work together like everybody yeah. wants to collaborate. And that was the first big observation was as opposed to closing the door on someone because they might have something out for you. No, you just collaborate no matter what. And you're just trying to, like, contribute to this greater good and the fabric of community. Yeah, I'm really glad that that's been your experience. I mean, that's been my experience, but I'm always curious, you know, how other people have experienced it. And what about in Truckee? I mean, you you live up there. Mm -hmm. That seems to have a burgeoning startup community as well. A little bit, sometimes a little disconnected from me. It doesn't seem like it'd be that far, but that 40 minutes can be... A barrier. Yeah. What's it like to be in Truckee? It seems like a really cool little town. I've, I love going up there. I've just never lived there. Yeah. Truckee's kind of, you know, this is my business community here, and Truckee's yeah. my home community. I've got a bunch of mom friends and, yeah. <laughs> you know, snowboarding friends and hikers, and it's just a, a good place. Everybody's pretty relaxed and good people. Yeah. Good stewards also. I've been to Ann Arbor once, which was a really cool experience. One of my good friends actually went to University of Michigan. And I don't, you probably don't know, but you might, Jeff Shocks. He was a patent oh, attorney. Yeah, you know course. Jeff? Of course yeah. you do. Of course. <laughs> he Who? actually wrote our patent way of, back in the day. Of course he did. Yeah. This is, I'm getting chills. I can't believe we <laughs> just figured this out. That is hilarious. Yeah. He wrote it out in San Francisco. So he yeah. was one of the people we were like, oh yeah, we should move to San Francisco because Jeff's out there. Yeah. That is such a small – so Jeff and I are in – or we were an entrepreneurs organization forever. Awesome. We're still in a forum together. Oh, wow. And small world. That is such a small world. You're not the only entrepreneur in Reno that has ties to Ann Arbor that have patents written by Jeff, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah, Pinocchio, some of their original patents. Were, really? Yeah. Awesome. What a I've even read world. Jeff's book. Oh, yeah. You know, I don't know if you know, but he's also in venture capital now and mm-hmm. doing uh, autonomous vehicles and future mobility and all that mm-hmm. good stuff. What a small world. Yeah. He's a great guy. And yeah, when he was deferring some of his clients, we started working with one of his employees, but that's when he was starting his venture capital. Yeah. God, what a small world. Of no course, kidding. Well, he took us to Ann Arbor. And I guess, what's that sandwich shop in... Zingerman's. Zingerman's. Oh, Definitely yeah. Zingerman's. Yeah, totally. It, yeah. <laughs> we got a chance to meet Mr. Zingerman and like the whole thing. And it was just fascinating. It was a really cool experience. And, you know, walking around Ann Arbor just got that entrepreneurial energy to it. It does. And it's one of those places where people build ecosystems and they're just yeah. kind of thinking about these whole cycles. Well, it was shocking to me, and I hadn't really considered this, but Detroit was like the Silicon Valley of its time. Right. And so you have, even though, you know, the auto industry has come and gone and, you know, it's coming again and whatever, but it embedded a lot of that entrepreneurial spirit into the culture there. And it's just, mm-hmm. you forget. I mean, it was like the center of the world for a while. For sure. Yeah. We were like a day away from moving to Detroit instead of San Francisco. And, you know, I was more an advocate for going with that underdog culture. And yeah. Keenan really wanted to move out to, the coast and surf, basically. Yeah. The and weather is not great in Detroit. I will give them that. It is not No, it's ideal. really ugly in the winter. Yeah. It's dark and there's no leaves and it's yeah. a city, so. <laughs> well, so how do you surf being in Truckee now? How, how does he get to surf now? Does he get the 10 days a year at Lake Tahoe surf or do you guys? Well, 
Keenan moved back to Michigan, oh, okay. so right. he actually oh, yeah. surfs on Lake Michigan. He does. Okay. Yeah. That's great. Which is, you know, when they have a big wind, he surfs. <laughs> it's incredible. He surfs in the winter with like as thick of a wetsuit as you can get. Yeah. That's exciting. Well, so what's next for you? I mean, you've got, you know, you're part of this fast growing company, you've got one baby. What's the next two to three years or five years look f- like for you? Yeah, I'm really just digging into this business and I'm here for the long haul until we make our big moves. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see what they are, but we have a big mission and we've got a lot of work to do and I'm just excited for this experience. Yeah. And trying not to do a hundred side projects, which I have (laughs) in the past. Actually, there was one point, you know, in the past seven years where I decided, okay, I'm trying to start a hot sauce company. I have this underwear and leggings brand with my sister and I'm also running coworker and I need to just, yeah, yeah, shut everything down so I can be successful at one. Yeah. Spoken like a true entrepreneur, you definitely have, you know, the squirrel problem. I'm like that all the time. It's just trying to get focused. It's one of those things that's very frustrating because I, I can imagine you can see opportunity in everything. Mm-hmm. And But knowing where to put your time and being discerning about that is really critical for success. Yeah, opportunity. And you just want to like, you want to change something. Yeah. Or my friend at the new year, she wrote a post of I'm putting my energy towards helping women just pave their own path. Yeah. Young women pave their own path this year. And I was like, that's a great mission. I need to talk to her. I got to get behind this. What can we do? <laughs> Which is great. I mean, your experience is really powerful. I mean, you're, you're trailblazing. I mean, you're, it's great to see more female entrepreneurs. And, you know, our local entrepreneurs organization chapter has a one of the higher percentage of female entrepreneurs, but generally it's disproportionately male-oriented, although it does seem like it's improving. And I like all the things we're getting out there to support women. I don't know if you know this, but my mom was the head of the Women's Bureau for Department of Labor for many years. Oh, wow. Uh, focused I didn't on know gender that. equity. So for, a, you know, when I was a young boy, I got to wear a 52 cent button. And there was a picture of me pushing a uh, vacuum, which is probably why I don't vacuum anything today. But, <laughs> but, you know, early on in the gender awesome. equity world. So it, it's important to me that we help support all founders. I want to help, you know, anybody that wants to create what they want to create. For sure. Um, and try and break down whatever the institutional barriers are for that. Yeah. I think if anywhere, that may be somewhere that I might focus some energy in the next couple of years, yeah. just as a something that I can support but not have to lead. <laughs> well, I will tell you, there is a exciting, I can't name it, but there is an exciting new program coming to town that's in a technology accelerator that will definitely need quality mentors. And I can't think of any better than you to be a mentor for the program. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, yeah would love to chat more about it. Yeah, well, thank you so much for spending some time on the podcast. It's really nice to see you, to, to hear your backstory. I, I really enjoyed learning about you know, your origin, working with your dad, and just really happy that everything has been successful for you coming to Reno. When we first started this work, you know, we were like, you should come to Reno. It's going to be great. And we didn't know if it would work out for a lot of people, but it's been working out for a lot of people. And you're just, you're one of the success stories. So just awesome. thank you for coming and thank you for being on the show. Yeah. Thanks, Doug. All right. Till next time. Next time. 